I received a remarkable gift for Christmas that I thought I would share with you today. It's right here, actually. I'll get it for you. It is a print of Norman Rockwell's painting, Lift Up Thine Eyes. Lift Up Thine Eyes. It was painted in 1957 and ran in McCall's as an illustration for a little column by Hubert Humphrey, the former vice president, in 1969. Perhaps you know uh, the painting. It, uh, it's full of Rockwell's trademark wit. It depicts people shuffling around in front of a beautiful neo-Gothic cathedral, which is actually St. Thomas Episcopal Church in New York City. Everyone, it's a cross-section of society, and their heads are bowed, but not in reverence. They're not engaging with one another. Instead, they appear to be downtrodden, sort of in a rush, but heavy laden. They feel like they're, they're weighed down with worry. Meanwhile, the uh, sexton of the church is putting a message on the little message board for Sunday, and it says, lift up thine eyes. The irony being that everyone's eyes are at their feet. Now, the reference is actually to Isaiah and the passage that we just heard read by Lizzie, as well as one later, in fact. The context of that passage is that the Israelites are in captivity. They're in Babylon, and they're losing heart. They've started to grumble. They say, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. In other words, they're starting to believe that God is absent or uncaring. And so Isaiah, in typically blunt fashion, he likens them to grasshoppers and urges them to lift up their eyes to the heavens. Their perspective, you see, is far too horizontal, or in fact, it's a downward sloping diagonal. They have mistaken what they can see from their limited perspective with the scope of God's activity in the world. And it is having an adverse effect on their spirits. That effect is manifested as exhaustion and bitterness and despair. And so Isaiah counsels verticality, verticality, lift up thine eyes. Now, Rockwell was clearly taking Isaiah as his inspiration, as the people in the painting do resemble grasshoppers sort of scuttling along the, the, the sidewalk, occupying the very bottom, the bottom sixth of the painting. Their division is directed only at their feet and what's in front of them. And yet it's also a picture, a painting, just um, full of hope, because, you see, the, the very shape of the canvas is vertical, which draws our attention to just how much those grasshoppers are missing of the world. In fact, they're missing the vast majority of what there is to see and experience. They're missing the place. See, all they can see is sort of the grime and the ugliness of what's on the sidewalk. But as, as you rise up and as your eyes is directed upward by the railings and by the ladder and by the, the arches, you, that grime is outflanked by grandeur and beauty and purity 
and even a sense of these doves and pigeons flying upward at free, free as a bird. Now, Rockwell made the painting in 1957, but it's not at all difficult to transpose it to our time. Anyone I've shown this painting to says, well, gosh, just put smartphones in their hands and you have the exact same scenario today. Lift up thine eyes from thy screen, you might as well shout. Well, that's how limited our perspective is, and it's how limited these New Yorkers' perspective is, and it's the same limitation that the Israelites had. Perhaps this inward uh, tendency is a human tendency that abides throughout history and technological epochs. Isaiah here, he decides to, to burst into that perspective by talking about the stars talking about the God who, who, who hung the stars like a curtain and talking about creation and millennia before. It is one of the great zoom-out moments that he is so good at. But before we get to what he's counseling as a solution, uh, let's talk a little bit about what keeps our eyes cast down today and our shoulders hunched because, you know, it's not just our phones. It's not just social media. That doesn't help. But like the people in the painting, her eyes are cast down because life is coming at us fast. And there's so much busyness, even in a time of a pandemic, so much is coming at a person that we're, we're, we're so tempted to adopt a protective posture, a, a shell that keeps people out. Uh, our shoulders are hunched out of fear and we're weighed down by guilt and simply fatigue. Now, you'll note that when people's eyes are cast down, they don't, it's not that they're not looking upward, they're not even looking at each other. Other people become obstacles, which is a recipe for exhaustion, but mainly loneliness. Now, this reminded, is reminded of the sort of loneliness of a, of a downward cast eye this week. There was a remarkable article in The Atlantic written by a woman named Amanda Mull who wrote that part of the exhaustion we're feeling at this stage in the pandemic is that we're missing those we don't actually know very well. We're, it is, the pandemic has erased entire categories of friendships, the people on the periphery of your life, maybe the folks you'd run into at a place like church. She writes, friendly chats between customers and delivery guys, bartenders, or other service workers are rarer in the world of contactless delivery and curbside pickup. In normal times, those brief encounters tend to be good for tips, but they also give otherwise rote interactions a more pleasant human texture for both parties. It allows us to have our humanity reflected back at us. Strip out the humanity and there's nothing left but the transaction itself. Moreover, people on the peripheries of our lives introduce us to new ideas, new information, new opportunities, and other new people. If variety is the spice of life, well, it's relationships with people on the periphery that are the conduit for it. In other words, one of the punishing aspects of the pandemic is the sameness, 
that it's wonderful to have close relationships with people, but after nine months, there's a sameness to it, which we don't even, didn't even realize was affecting our mental health, because we're never exposed to anything but what we've already been exposed to. Okay, well then what is the answer here? Because if Rockwell is right and Isaiah is right, well the admonition to lift up thine eyes doesn't really work. It doesn't even work when the architecture is as beautiful as that of St. Thomas. Isaiah himself has to repeat the exact same instruction in chapter 60. So the question remains, how does a fundamentally bent-over person, a person who's been bent over by life and a person who has been bent over by their own nature, how do they lift their eyes open, the eyes up? How does a person become a little less grasshopper-like? Well, Isaiah's ultimate answer is God, the one who, unlike us, does not grow faint or grow weary. In fact, this God that Isaiah is positing is the God who gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. In other words, grace is what makes a bent-over person lift up their eyes. And by grace here, I'm talking about some form of intervening love. One of the other great gifts of pandemic time has been the show on Apple TV called Ted Lasso. Now, maybe you've seen it. I hope you have. It is a show that just drips with grace, uh, both the capital G variety and the small g variety. And it's fantastic if a little crude, because it's a comedy. Ted Lasso is about an American college football coach, Midwestern, the whole nine, who is somehow hired to coach a professional English soccer team. So there's the fish-out-of-water clash of cultures. Why on earth have they hired this guy who it's clear doesn't really know anything about soccer to come and coach them? Well, I'm not going to spoil the series for you. You should watch it. But we soon find out that great coaches don't have to actually know the sport they're coaching if they know people. And Ted Lasso, come to find out, despite all of his bumpkin-y uh, facade, he knows people. And we see this particularly when he first meets a lowly clubhouse attendant named Nathan. A clubhouse attendant is basically their word for the guy who takes care of the laundry, who turns on the lights. His name is Nathan. He picks up after the players, and he is clearly not a confident person. In fact, he's quiet. He's hunched. He's looking down when Ted first meets him. And he's looking down because he's dumped on by the team. He's small. They make him ride in the, the beneath the bus with the luggage. Uh, he's the butt of all the jokes. So much so that he's taken aback when Ted, not knowing the hierarchy, asks him his name. Nate, he responds, looking up for the first time. Ted immediately decides to call him Nate the Great. You see, no one else is really willing to help Ted find his footing, and so he has only Nate to ask questions about football, what they call soccer. He's unaware of or choosing to ignore the protocols that are in place. 
He's flouting the convention. But slowly but surely, he draws this young man, Nate, out, giving him more and more respect and responsibility until eventually he does the unthinkable. He asks Nate to give a major locker room speech before a big game. Nate is taken aback. He doesn't know what to do, but he walks in there, and it's clear that he's the sort of guy who's been rehearsing locker room speeches his entire life, but has never had the guts to give one. And he goes in there, and he, you see him standing tall, and he speaks loudly for the first time, and he, he berates the players and encourages them, and he does it all because this remarkable coach, Ted Lasso, who everyone thought didn't know what he was doing, actually had the much bigger picture in mind. But the kicker comes a few days after the big game. I won't tell you what happens in the game, but know that Nate arrives at the stadium and he turns on the light only to find someone else pushing his laundry cart. He asks, what are you doing? To which the young man pushing the cart responds, I'm Will, I'm the new clubhouse attendant. Nate is crestfallen and angry. And all of a sudden, the owner of the club appears and he says, have I been sacked? The owner, very formal woman, says, why so hostile, Nathan? Which takes Nathan aback. Nate says, you know my name? And she responds, well, I had to spell it correctly for your contract. Nate, Ted chimes in, you haven't been fired, it's worse. You've been promoted. Pandemonium erupts in the clubhouse. It is a beautiful moment and champagne is flowing and Nate is literally lifted up by the players. You see, what Nate thought was going on and what was actually going on were two different things. His gaze, his downward gaze, had been interrupted by something new and something gracious. Now today, I am here to remind you that our gaze, our gaze at our feet has been interrupted as well. And what we find when we lift up our eyes is a man breaking into the punishing sameness of human existence and submitting himself to all the bent-over grasshoppers of the world, suffering their fears and their self-protectiveness, and meeting it not with recrimination, but with sacrificial love. We see a man, Jesus Christ, lifted high on a cross for the sake of those who put him there. This is the God who became a grace, a grasshopper, and he is grace incarnate. And so, my friends, take heart. What we see and what God is doing in any given moment are so often not the same. The crucifixion, it turns out, was just a prelude to the resurrection and the restoration of all things which is continuing today and this week, which is another way to say, welcome to the rest of the canvas. The birds are flying and grace is falling down like rain. Amen.